It's been a huge week for the Seattle Seahawks. The debut of the throwback uniforms was followed by a thrilling last-minute victory over the Browns, a move into first place in the NFC West, and it culminated with the acquisition of Pro Bowler Leonard Williams. Next up, a marquee showdown with the Baltimore Ravens. Seahawks beat reporter Corbin Smith joins us to break it all down. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my cantankerous producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? We are so great, Jackson. We are coming off of a wild weekend of Seahawks football. We got to see... Okay, you know what? Let's... There's no time to waste, man. We need to talk about those uniforms because, yeah. oh my God. Oh, I don't think anyone has ever looked better than the Seahawks. I mean, can we can we talk about football aesthetic? It's important. Has anybody ever looked better on a football field than Bobby Wagner did? I mean, did the the actual digits, like the, the font, the design of the numbers is so important. And they're just so crisp on those jerseys. Like when they... When they debuted like Action Green as their alternative jerseys a few years ago, you know, it's it's kind of a meme. It's kind of like uh oh yeah. they're like so gross. Y'all know how I feel about those. We all know how we all know how you feel about those. But despite these being kind of like a novelty, it just felt right. It felt like they fit. It felt like it wasn't just like a blast from the past. It felt very present. Here's how I put it. I feel like the Seahawks with their new uniforms, I'm, I'm not talking about the finger paint blue of the Jim Mora era here, late Mike Holmgren. I'm talking about what they've had with uh, the majority of the Pete Carroll era. Their current uniforms have been good. It's like someone who dresses really well. But on Sunday, it was like that person went to a tailor. And they got the exact right clothes with the exact right fit, and it was transformative. I mean, the Seahawks usually look good out there. They looked amazing on Sunday. Thank God they won because oh my God. they deserved it, man. Oh. And like, you know, I, I do believe to some degree the clothes make the man, but that that start to that game where they could, had everything to do with the vibes surrounding this throwback debut that they did. The energy in the stadium must have been un, unbelievable to experience, but... The word that you used in the article this past weekend was resplendent, and that is how the Seahawks looked. And they that were, is they were resplendent. When it all came down to brass tacks at the end, that is how they played. They played a game deserving of those uniforms, and for that, we should all be grateful to not have those highlights tainted with oh the my sting God, of right. an L against oh God in such a fashion where they went seven drives without scoring. You know, maybe if it would have gone eight, things honestly, gone I think that as much as anything was them honoring the history of the franchise. <laughs> yes, <completely. laughs> Just play yeah. gross ass football for like 40 minutes and then steal a win in the final drive. Oh, it was ass football for a minute there. Believe me, but <laughs> Hey man, they got the dub and that's really all that matters. Yeah, man. Well, it's been a hell of a week for the old, ball club like you said man we got to see those retro uniforms we were treated to a classic seahawks nail-biting win and then christmas came early in the form of leonard williams we're going to sink our teeth into all of that but first if you're listening or watching us right now it's hopefully because you like the show and if you like the show there are a few ways you can support it 
If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, take a couple of seconds right now, leave us a five-star rating, and if you're feeling super supportive, leave us a quick review. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll find full video episodes, entertaining clips, and audio reads of every Cigar Thoughts article after each game this season. Finally, we have our own special release of cigars that you can purchase at a screaming price as a listener of the show. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm smoking one of them right now. As many of you know, we have partnered with one of the most prestigious cigar manufacturers in the world to release these official Cigar Thoughts cigars, which you can order directly from CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Just follow the link and get these easy-to-smoke stogies rolled with 13-year-aged premium Dominican tobacco leaf, or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, as many of you have, and we'll send you the details directly. As we've mentioned before, a box of 10 stogies with this particular blend would normally go for between $350 to $400, but our partnership allows you to get your own bundle of 10 for just $169. That's less than half of MSRP. And the cigars come with a Bavita humidification pack and a Mylar storage bag to make sure they stay fresh, whether you have a humidor or not. And dang, Mike, what a month the last few days have been, huh? <laughs> the Seahawks, they moved to five and two with the game-winning touchdown in the final minute. Then, not 20 minutes later, slipped into first place in the division when the 49ers lost their third straight game. And yesterday, they made a huge splash, trading a second rounder next year and a fifth rounder the following season to land the big cat, Leonard Williams, from the Giants. That was then countered by the Niners' acquisition of Chase Young from the Commanders, and here we are, in the midst of a good old-fashioned arms race. Mm. Fortunately, we've got a fantastic guest to help put everything in perspective for us. He is a member of the Seahawks Beat, representing Fan Nation for Sports Illustrated, and hosts the Locked On Seahawks podcast. He is a friend of the show, Corbin Smith. Corbin, thanks for hopping on with us. Absolutely, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, we always love having you, love your insight, and really grateful you're here because it's been a big few days, and let's start at the top, man. Seahawks made a big move the day before the trade deadline, acquiring Leonard Williams from the New York Giants in exchange for a 2024 second and a 25 fifth. What was your reaction when you heard the news, and what is it now that you've had 24 hours to digest? Well, first off, I will say I, I think that this is the perfect player for them to add to their football team right now in terms of what they needed. And obviously, you tend to injury. I've talked about some edge guys that they could have gone after, but they needed to add another big dogger, in this case, a big cat, to this <laughs> defensive line. And Leonard Williams, I think, is one of the most underrated players in the NFL. He only has one Pro Bowl on his resume. He's never been an All-Pro selection, but I think that's largely because he's mostly played for crappy teams. Last year was the first year he had ever been in the playoffs, but he's had seven or more sacks four different times. He has been consistently a quarterback harasser in terms of pressures. He's still 14th in the NFL this year for defensive linemen in quarterback pressures. So the sack numbers might not be there the last couple of years, but he is still a very disruptive player. He's consistently been an outstanding run defender. And the thing that I love about him the most is you can move him up and down the line. And he's still going to be a disruptive presence. He's played over 600 snaps as the nose tackle spot, over 3,000 snaps as a three tech, over 1,000 snaps as a five tech head up on the tackle. And he's played over 1,000 snaps standing up out wide at 300 pounds. The guy can do it all. And in a defense like Seattle, where they run a lot of odd and even fronts, this is a guy that you can keep in the lineup and you can mix him in and out. And he's not going to have to play 75% of the snaps like he did in New York either. They're going to be able to keep him fresh with Jaron Reed, Draymond Jones, Mario Edwards, Miles Adams. 
So I, I think this is a fantastic addition for the Seahawks, a guy that to me is one of the most underrated players in the league. And this is going to give him a chance to really accentuate his strengths in this system with all the talent he's going to have around him in the trenches. Yeah, you know, there's been so much talk about the Seahawks going after an edge rusher, especially with Inwosu going down. I mean, the edge is the premier position in defense right now. And so those are the names that are going to move the needle more than an interior defensive lineman who can play like a pro bowler or like an all pro, but not have the stats to reflect it. You know, uh, reminds me of a conversation I was having about whether Cam Chancellor was a Hall of Famer. I don't think there's any doubt Cam Chancellor was the best strong safety in the NFL for five or six years. But because he was a strong safety and because all pros are given out to safety and pro bowls to the safety position as general, he didn't have the numbers that are going to match with the free safeties. They're just going to get more tackles, more interceptions, things like that. It's kind of the same for an interior defensive lineman. They're not going to typically have the same type of numbers unless you're Aaron Donald that a player playing the edge does. But you hit on his versatility. And to me, I got to think that's as much a reason as anything else why Seattle decided to pay up for Leonard Williams as opposed to some of the edge rushers who ended up being available on this trade deadline. Yeah, I think that that really played into it, the versatility, the ability to move up and down the line. I also think that this is a player, not just because he's from USC, but Pete Carroll was talking about it with us, the reporters yesterday, the familiarity that he has with him from his background at USC. They've known who he is for a long time. And you add in the fact that I think some of Leonard Williams' best games have been against the Seahawks over the years. I mean, two years ago, Pete kind of mentioned that. He has been a Seahawk killer. So getting him in a Seahawk uniform, he's a West Coast guy. This will be the first time in his NFL career that he gets to play on the West Coast. You could see and hear the excitement just reading through his Instagram post, how fired up he is to be in Seattle. But uh, this is going to be the first time that he's really going to be thrown into a battle to win a division. The Giants have never been in that mix. They finally made the playoffs last year, but they weren't the division champion. This is going to be new territory. You can't tell me he's not going to be fired up with the team he's joining, getting to play for Pete Carroll, and being thrown into a race here to win a division title. This is a chance for him to really turn things on and really be an impact type player that can put the Seahawks over the hump. Yeah, you know, and a lot of times with these deadline deals, you see name brand players like Leonard Williams move for a mid or even a late round pick because a lot of times the teams that are trading them, they're not in contention. They're trying to create some cap flexibility more than anything. Seattle paid a second rounder. That's not nothing. But In doing so, and this is my understanding, is the Seahawks were basically willing to bump it up to a second in exchange for the Giants basically paying his salary for the rest of this year. Uh, I think Seattle's on the hook for the veteran minimum and the Giants are picking up like $15 extra. How much, you know, you're, you're close enough to the fire. How much of these conversations come down to, all right, we'll do this, but we need you to make the money work for us. Yeah, I think when you're looking at a player like Leonard Williams that has a big contract, that certainly becomes more of an issue for an acquiring football team. And I think it was Von Miller a few years ago when the Rams acquired him that made a similar deal where the... uh, Denver Broncos ate a big chunk of his money so that they could acquire a higher draft pick from the Rams. And so that's what the Seahawks agreed to do. And as Pete Carroll talked about yesterday, having that extra third rounder from the Denver Broncos made this an easier decision because they are hoping that this second round pick is going to be at the back of the second round. 
And so it's yeah. not going to be that much more valuable than what a early to mid third round selection is. That made it easier for them to move on from this. But they only have to pay $647,000 for the remainder of the year, a prorated veteran minimum. The rest is being paid by the New York Giants. And so that was I mean, the that's, trade-off. That's this only really- what I pay Mike. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like you could pay me less than that and I'll still I'll still suit up. <laughs> that was yeah, that is a money ball. It's a baseball type of acquisition. You don't see it happen a lot in the NFL, but it has happened more frequently in recent years and so Seattle was able that was a bargaining chip for chip for them. Hey, we'll give you that second rounder, but you got to pay for it. And otherwise, it would have probably been a third or even a fourth round pick depending on how much the Seahawks had to eat and they wouldn't have been able to absorb his contract without something like this with the cap space that they had available. Right. Right. And that that's a huge thing that you got to keep in mind is, you know, you, you have a limit on what your functional salary is even with a midseason move. You know, you can't just goose the pot as much as you want. And I'm glad that Pete mentioned having that extra third rounder because it was kind of an under the radar deal when they acquired that from Denver uh during this past year's draft, getting that extra third rounder because and, and correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is it's, it's conditional in that it becomes whichever is the lower of the two picks between Denver's finishing position and the Saints finishing position. But still, it's a third rounder. Neither of those teams are projected to go super far this season. So you're probably looking early, mid, third round with that pick. And you're not really sliding back all that far from where Seattle would be picking in the second. So it, w- it was one of the first things that I thought of when I was processing the trade. Cause my first thought was, man, a second rounder. Like, I think that's probably fair on paper, but a second rounder, man. And then I started to think about that. So to hear Pete say that was part of the um, equation for them, I think it was a little validating and, and also a little bit comforting just realizing like we're still basically full boat when it comes to draft capital going in to next year. I want to pivot because this was not a move that was made in a vacuum. The Seahawks just finally passed San Francisco for pole position in the NFC West. The 49ers looked unbeatable for the first month of the season and gone 0-3 since. I mean, things can change that quickly in the NFL, but they answered back. And they traded a third rounder for Chase Young from the Washington Commanders, who was the number two overall pick. He played with Nick Bosa at Ohio State. Um, he was a guy that a lot of people thought was going to be a perennial all pro. He's battled some injuries, some organizational dysfunction in Washington. How good of a player did the 49ers just get? I think Chase Young is playing the best football of his career right now. He's not on the same tangent as Nick Bosa, even for Bosa this year, not as dominant as we've seen in the past, but he's still having a great season. But I look at this trade a little bit differently than what most people are. I have no issue with the player. I think Chase Young is a great player, a great talent, and he's going to a team. I mean, Cleveland Farrell's been doing damage for the 49ers. I mean, their coaching staff knows how to resurrect careers, and certainly uh, Chase Young has been much more productive than Farrell was when he's been healthy, but this almost feels like one of those situations where, okay, it's a nice addition, but... This is this is the economics teacher in me coming out of here. But how much better is 
an elite defensive line going to get by bringing in another guy? To me, there's diminishing returns. Like, you're already one of the best. I know you can never have too many pass rushers, but I got to wonder just how much does this really move the needle, whereas if they would have gotten a corner to upgrade their secondary... Well, they tried to. they would have gotten... They tried to. (laughs) Yeah. Or... If they would have gotten some help with their interior offensive line, they've had some issues with pressure coming from the interior on offense, too. If they would have addressed one of those spots, maybe it's not near as sexy of a trade and isn't going to draw the big reviews bringing in Chase Young does, but I think it puts your team over the top more than adding to an already super group and making them a super, super group. I just don't know how much it's truly going to move the needle. Now, if Young comes in and just absolutely lights it on fire, then that's a big thing for the 49ers. But they've still got that secondary that's had some issues, and they weren't able to make anything happen. They tried to finish a trade-off to get a Dory Jackson, but uh, it didn't happen. So uh, I think they've still got some noticeable flaws that they did not address and they just doubled down on an area that was already a strength, which that doesn't always pay off. Yeah, and you wonder how much pressure they felt by the Seahawks making this move. I wonder if they go out and get a defensive lineman if the Seahawks didn't get a defensive lineman. And I'm not sitting here saying that the 49ers are just reactive to whatever Seattle is doing, but at at the same time, these, like I said earlier, these moves aren't made in a vacuum. And when you see the team that is the most direct threat to your goals this season, because every Super Bowl contender's goal list starts with winning the division. And Seattle is the biggest obstacle to that for 49ers. You see them soup up a position and you say, oh, shit, have they closed the gap on us on the defensive line? We need to jump back ahead. I wonder if that move happens without Leonard Williams coming to Seattle. And yeah, it's probably a good thing for the Seahawks that they weren't able to pull off a Dory Jackson from, from the giants in time. Sounds like they had agreed to the deal and then it didn't get submitted before the deadline, which is crazy. But uh, you know, thank God for that. At least well, Seahawks from, fans from his, are not going to complain. No, about no, that, that's fine. That timing issue. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, so here, here's the other thing, you know, there's some downstream effects to this, both Williams and young are unrestricted free agents at the end of this season, which is my understanding. Talk to us a little bit about the pressure now, having traded a second rounder who would have been under club control for up to four years for, you know, very reasonable amount of money. Now to re-sign a Leonard Williams or for the 49ers to re-sign a Chase Young versus the compensation that they get if they don't end up doing it in terms of a comp pick. I think that in terms of compensation, I think the Seahawks maybe are under a little more pressure there just because the second round pick compared to the the pick that the 49ers are trading away is a third round cop pick. It's basically a fourth round selection. So there's a big gap in value with those two. And you could still potentially get a third round cop pick back if Chase Young signs a big contract with somebody else. The same would hold true for Leonard Williams, but... You know, Pete Carroll unprompted yesterday was talking about Leonard Williams being there beyond this year. I don't think this move was made thinking that this is going to be a rental. I think that Pete Carroll wants him to be on this football team for the next several seasons. Maybe he finishes his career in Seattle. We'll have to see what the value looks like. But I don't know that he's going to be able to get the big bucks in the market because he's going to be 30 years old. And he has played a lot of snaps. And if he really enjoys his time in Seattle here over the next eight, nine weeks into the playoffs, hopefully, then I think it's going to be easier for him as a West Coast guy to begin with to to want to stay here. And I'm not saying he's going to take a hometown discount, but uh, I definitely think that 
this is a situation that sets up favorably for Seattle to be able to keep him after the season and find ways financially to do that. Yeah, yeah. One last thing, just in a vacuum, let's say, for forget the 49ers aspect of this, but knowing what it took to get Chase Young. If you're John Schneider and you had the choice between a second and a fifth for Leonard Williams or a comp third for Chase Young, what would you have done? I would have done what they did because I I mentioned this earlier. I think that was the bigger deficiency for the Seahawks because I want you to think about this, Jackson. If Jaron Reed goes down or Draymond Jones goes down, there is very little depth on that defensive line for the Seahawks in the interior, especially with Brian Monet not being back and probably not going to be back this season. If I'm being honest with you, that's my assessment. But this is a thin defensive line. But now you have Williams, Reed, you've got Mario Edwards, you've got Draymond Jones, Miles Adams as a fifth guy is a really solid fifth defensive tackle. It suddenly looks that much better. So bringing in Chase Young would have been a nice addition, but I think that there's some similarities between him and some of the other ends that the Seahawks still have that are healthy on the roster. I would have thought that somebody, you know, giving up a seven, I was pitching this. I still think Carl Lawson would have made a ton of sense. He's not playing for the New York Jets. But, you know, somebody like that that you can give up a late-round pick for, and I thought that might be a type of deal that would happen for them to to add with Uchenna Nuosu's situation. But ultimately, the interior is where they need help, and this guy is such a good scheme fit that I think in the end, this price, the Seahawks are going to be more than satisfied with what they paid for him as a guy that I think they're going to try to extend to bring back after this year. Well, it's certainly very encouraging from a Seattle perspective. And I want to pivot a little bit and talk about this game this past Sunday. Obviously, the Seahawks came out wearing what might be the best uniforms in NFL history. And early on, it looked like they were going to be carried to victory by the power of these Technicolor dream coats that they were wearing. But instead, their 14-0 lead was erased. And before you know it, they found themselves down 20-17. to Eventually, they embarked on the game-winning drive that was sparked by a big interception with two minutes left. Corbin, when you look at this game as a whole, what stood out to you the most? I think that the fact that they were still able to put up 24 points, I know most of it came in the first quarter, but this Browns team had given up less than 250 yards in every single game that they had played up to that point. And their secondary, I went in overlooking them, I guess. I mean, I thought they were a good group, but I thought it was the pass rush that really had made a difference. That secondary is tough. Martin yep. Emerson's a good player. Uh, Greg Newsom got hurt late in the game, but he's a very good player with inside-outside capability. Their safeties are solid. And... Their linebackers are extremely aggressive. I was surprised Seattle didn't do more direct under center straight drop back play action because the way those linebackers were shooting up against the run, the middle of the field had to be open on some plays there. Do you think do you think Gino's knee played into that at all? I, I don't think that his health at this point is anything to be concerned about. So, uh, so they're not taking under center plays out. You see that a lot of times, kind of an underrated part of an offense coordinator's job is if you have a quarterback with a lower body injury, a lot of times they don't like to put them under center and have them take those those dropbacks. You don't get the sense that that was an issue? No, I don't think that that at all was the case. I think that they were looking at who's on the other side of the football, and they wanted Geno Smith to have as much space as possible <laughs> to try to be able to move the sure. pocket, But which I understand that. But I also, like I said, watching the game live, I'm like, man, their linebackers are just flying up to the line of scrimmage 
they're, they're going to get baited by play action. And I just felt like they really didn't lean on that very much. And then the run game, I, I disagreed with Pete Carroll to an extent on this. Carroll was saying it was hit and miss. I, I thought the run game was really good most of the game. And I'm they got, they, were getting, they, they were getting almost nine yards of carry from their two tailbacks. Yeah, and I get it that explosive plays contributed a lot to that. But at the same time, like when they were running to the right side, there I would give several credit. explosive plays. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah we're not in the <laughs> habit of quite a few. Uh, penalizing people for good plays. I, I am somebody that, you know, I love it when I have to, when I can admit that I'm wrong on something. And Stone Forsyth was a player at the end of training camp that I thought was very much on the roster bubble to make this football team. And I would stand by that assessment. He did not look good in training camp. He had a rough preseason, but he played his best football game by a wide he margin was awesome. on Sunday. He had the block. I, I posted it on X earlier today. He had the block that sprung Ken Walker the third on his 47-yard run, and, and it was impressive. Dalvin Tomlinson is a man. He is yeah, a he mountain is. of a man. And Stone Forsythe had to go inside. He had to put his hands inside, and he reach-blocked him and hooked him and then held him, not like holding penalty, but just locked him down. And I was just like, that's not a play I've seen from Stone Forsythe against a guy like that. Sure. And he was involved on that big screen play for Jackson Smith and Jigba. He and Bradford pancaked a guy. Um, he gave up one pressure by my count and pass protection. He was fantastic. And he Man. had some reps against Miles Garrett that were really good. I, I I have to give him credit. And he's looked good most of the time he's played in the regular season. So it, it's been a surprise because he didn't look like that. He wasn't playing with confidence in the preseason, but he has gotten more and more confident out there. And Jason Peters being able to rotate with him. I thought Jason Peters looked pretty solid sure. in his first action for the team. So uh, my opinion on this issue, and this is just a whole other topic, but I think that the Seahawks have been, they have actively been preparing to go through the rest of the season without Abraham Lucas. I think that that's what they have been doing. This has not been a, let's get some stop gaps. We'll get him back by the end of the year. I think they are bracing, listening to Pete Carroll's comments yesterday. Yeah. The fact that Abraham Lucas is still having discomfort after having that injection, that to me is very worrisome for his future, at least in the short term. I would not be surprised at all if he doesn't play again this season. So, so Forsyth, Jason Peters, they're going to be giving both them opportunities right now because those are the guys that are going to be there for them at this point. I'm glad you touched on Stone Forsyth because I've been on the record saying that Stone Forsyth is a Hall of Fame offensive lineman name. <laughs> so I'm glad the play is finally catching up to that. Uh, but in terms of him and Jason Peters rotating snaps, you actually wrote a piece on this recently about Pete and the offensive line and the coaching staff. They're embracing this rotational snap count, I guess, for these different positions at like right guard last year. So tell us about that. Yeah, I actually asked Pete about this at the press conference yesterday because I think it was three or four years ago that I was asking Pete a similar question about continuity, and I don't have the clip. I was trying to go back and find it yesterday, but it's long enough ago. I, I couldn't find the specific press conference, but he was talking about how important it was to have the same five offensive linemen in and the continuity aspect, and he's completely pivoted. And this is why Pete Carroll is the coach that he is. You know, a lot of people a few years ago were saying he's not willing to adjust. It's like, I don't know what you're watching. He is more guilty. Than, he is more than willing I'm, to adjust. I was guilty of that, man. But we've seen it here the last two years on a number of fronts that 
he is an old bird that's more than willing to change the color of his feathers. And he's done it with the offensive line. And I used to be the same way of thinking that you got to have the same five guys. But look at how much it has helped them that Phil Haynes got the reps that he did last year. I know he's been hurt recently, but he looked really good the first couple of games. You're getting Anthony Bradford reps. He gets better every single game. Olua Timmy's gotten some reps. And Forsyth and Peters, I know that people would look at the fact they didn't score for seven drives. They had a bunch of three and outs. It was not the right tackle's fault. It was not them rotating. Both those guys played well the entire game. So the rotation thing has ultimately given them the best depth they've had on the offensive line in the entire Pete Carroll era, in my opinion. So it it has really set them up favorably, even when they've had a few guys go down. So I I think this new mindset and not being, you know, not subscribing to the idea that you have to play the same five guys, you can't rotate linemen. I'm all on board with it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you, you mentioned the seven consecutive scoreless drives and that's frustrating. And Seattle's had a really difficult time scoring in the second, third quarters this year. But they've been awesome out of the gate as an offense. And it's tough outside looking in. You say, oh my gosh, you come out with your 15 or so scripted plays to start the game. You go down, you score two touchdowns, you get a field goal on the next possession, and then it disappears. And that's been a theme this season. Talk to us about the difference between an offensive coordinators scripted plays at the beginning of a game and then adjusting and being able to remain productive during the middle of the game because Seattle hasn't done that and and talk to us specifically about what that means for Shane Waldron yeah I think this really you know we're looking at this I'm not going to say that I have the experience to be able to answer this question from the sense of an NFL offensive coordinator I mean I called plays for a JV high school team yeah. back in the day. And and I, I could tell you that that was interesting because you could run about four plays with the right. JV. So if you were coaching varsity, you could have had a much larger playbook to work with. But JV, it's basically, oh, they can't stop this lead dive and they haven't stopped it the last 10 times, so I'm going to keep running it. Or we have these two pass right. plays right. that I'm comfortable with my quarterback throwing. But when you're talking about an NFL standpoint, Shane Waldron has shown this ever since he took over. He is outstanding at putting together a script for the beginning of the game. He knows what he wants to do early. But what I've noticed after they get away from those scripted plays and they get into the second and third quarter, I don't, I'm don't. i not going to say that he's over his head because I don't think that's accurate, but he gets too cute. That has been a consistent issue for me, Is that especially in the red zone, is it just seems like they go away from what's working. I mentioned the run game. Ken Walker the third had three carries on their first six plays, and then I think he had two carries the entire rest of the first half. Like yeah. that just blew my mind. And then you you see him try to sneak in trick plays, or you see him try to get cute with bootlegs, where the defense clearly is planning for a bootleg. And we saw that a couple of times on Sunday. It just it just seems like after those opening scripts that. I don't know if he gets behind the eight ball, but it just seems like he tries too hard to get cued and and outthinks himself, to be honest. And then late in the game, they went back to what was working early, and they go and they score touchdowns. It, it just seems like there's too well, yeah. much. I think I think he stresses himself a little too much trying to to do too much. And Why, I think Geno well, Smith does that under center sometimes too. And look, Shane, Shane Waldron isn't the only one who struggles with this. I mean, scoring in the first couple of drives in NFL games is higher on a per drive basis than it is the rest of the game. I I get that, but why not build the whole plane out of the scripted offense? And I'm not just talking about Seattle league wide. Why do we see 
coaches get away from a script with their playbook? Is is it really because defenses are adjusting so quickly? I think when you're playing a defense like the Cleveland Browns, that that may be the case because Jim Schwartz does a phenomenal job. He's and so they good. run He's they so run good. so many different defenses too. Going into this game, they were at a near 50-50 split between middle of field open and middle of field closed coverages. They were also top five in the league in blitzing. Like they do everything. Mm-hmm. So trying to game plan for them is very tricky. Cincinnati's kind of the same. You don't know what you're going to get week to week with them because they do so many different things. Dude, and then Baltimore next week. Like, this is a freaking gauntlet. That division, that division has got some of the most creative defensive minds that have defenses built around multiplicity. So uh, that has been part of the equation that's made this difficult for Shane Waltrip because of who you're going up against. These are really good defenses with really good coaches that are coordinating on the other side. But I, I just feel like when Waldron's at his best, and this is really for offensive coordinators in general, those plays that you script up, there is more than just the purpose of running them at that time. You're keeping them in your back pocket for the stuff that works, and then you're keeping some things that are similar that you can use right. later in the game, and they're going to be thinking, oh, they're running this play again, and then you hit them with a play action off of a run concept, or you sprinkle in a reverse, things like that. And I just feel like Seattle doesn't always do that in the middle of the game, and they get kind of into a generic situation. Like in this game, it was just, let's just drop back and throw, which surprised yeah, me that that's so what they were going to do. Man. But the pass protection ended up being better than they thought, and so I think that's why they went with that. They're like, hey, we got time. Let's do it. But sure. it felt like they should have leaned on the run game more. So we can sit back and we could question that stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, they still put up 24 points and over 360 yards on a defense that hadn't given up more than 250 in a game all year long. Yeah, so they, they were I as think good there's against a lot the Browns of positives defense. to take out of this. Totally. They were as good against the Browns defense as any team has been all year. And I think it's really important when we talk about the Seahawks offense to keep in mind what offense across the NFL has looked like outside of Miami this year. Defenses, defenses are whipping ass out there right now. And, you know, I mean, look no further than the Broncos who gave up 70 to the Dolphins a month ago. And they held, granted, he had the flu. I totally get that. They held the Chiefs without a touchdown. For the first time in Patrick Mahomes' career, they didn't score 10 points or more. And this is happening everywhere. So even with all of our frustrations, the Seahawks are eighth in points per drive. They're seventh in uh, yards per play. Like, on a per opportunity basis, this is still a top quartile team in the NFL when it comes to offense. And I think a lot of that has to do with how good the receivers have been. And I want to talk with you about that a little bit because Tyler Lockett, who's been quiet this year, let's just call a spade a spade. Uh, he had that hot start. He had six catches quick and he finished with uh, leading the team with eight catches for 81 yards. He did that on just nine targets. That was great to see. Uh, the thing with, DK Metcalf was weird because he got the target share. We've all been wanting him to get, he got 14 of Geno's 37 targets, Uh, just a monstrous number. But for whatever reason, this is what I wrote after the game. It looked like whenever Geno was targeting DK, he was shooting with a bent barrel. Like the, he was skipping throws to him. He was air mailing them. I counted six potentially catchable balls out of those 14 and DK caught five of them for 67 yards. Is there something about the type of routes or the type of receiver uh, that Metcalf is that makes that difficult? Or is that just random distribution 
Gino just happened to miss on throws to DK. Well, going back and watching the All-22, my opinion is that most of those throws, it just simply was Gino was not on his game in terms of accuracy. But I do think that interception that happened at the end of the first half, that was kind of a sloppy route by Metcalf, that out route. He kind of, it was kind of one of those banana out routes. Yeah, and that's that fair. It's so easy. It's so easy for a corner to undercut that. So I think that one is on Metcalf. There were a few other plays where there was one that Gino short hopped the throw to him and he was wide open on a slant. Like, that's a throw Gino completes 95, 99% of the time. Right. But for whatever reason, it felt like he was starting to feel the rush a little bit in the second half, even if it wasn't getting there. And he had a little bit of happy feet. And I think that contributed to it. It's not something I would expect is going to be an issue moving forward, but he was more inaccurate than what we've seen. And there were also some plays like, I I can't stand the fade routes in the end zone, how much they do it. I, I get DK is a big receiver, but like the hit rate on those plays is yeah. so low. Yeah. And there are a couple of them in this game. It's like, hey, Gino actually made decent throws and it didn't matter because it's just not a high efficiency route. So I think it's a multifaceted thing. You could look at the fact, hey, why are we still doing these as much as we are in the red zone? And then you could look at you know, some they, of the sloppy They've routes. really struggled with play calling in the red zone. And I know a lot of that has had to do with some issues up front, but that wasn't the case in Cleveland. And, you know, they did score on those first two drives, which which looked better, but then totally bogged I, down. They were three for four in the red zone, Jackson. I yep. mean, they, they, they scored touchdowns on three of those four drives, and the other one they got a field goal. So when they got to the red zone, they were effective in this game. Yep, yep. And they struggle a little bit in those uh, kind of short yardage situations in the middle of the game, too. The thing that was really exciting to me is the continued evolution of Jackson Smith and Jigba. And you look at his his stat sheet, four targets, three catches, 36 yards. Okay, that's that's nice. Here's the thing. When the game was on the line, they drew up a one-read play to the rookie. There were no other options on that game-winning touchdown. It was throw it to JSN and let Jackson Smith and Jigba go win this game. And he got a great block from DK, of course. But the way, look, it's no secret to anybody that the Seahawks have stunk at screen passes, bubble screens, running back screens, slip screens, you name it. They're terrible at it. Jackson Smith and Jigba did this on his own as far as creating the space necessary to even bring DK's block into play. And I know you watch a ton of film, so tell me if you saw something different. But the way he set his feet up when that ball was coming to him, he absolutely froze the corner that was covering him because he stagger stepped his feet right before the ball got there. So he faked inside before the ball even got there. Usually you'll see the receiver catch the ball, then fake inside and try and go outside. He did that before the ball got there. So he got the corner leaning inside before he caught it. By the time he caught it, corner had no chance. He was already around the outside. It was so cool to see them lean into that unique skill set that he has so early in his career with the game on the line. Yeah, I'm not a receiver coach. I coach running backs, but I I remember we called that a jab bubble. You would take a jab step inside and then you would bubble back. And that's what he did there. And the footwork was exquisite on But he that. did it while then, the ball was in the air is the thing. That was, yeah, was so impressive. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing. Yeah, I mean, talk about timing. Yeah. You have to have everything dead on. And so, yeah, that, that was a really, really cool play. And earlier in the game, they had a 19-yard screen. The one I mentioned that Forsyth was involved getting the pancake block that set him loose. But 
It was amazing. Not only did they run one play, a screen that worked really well, they ran a second one that won the game. Like, that's unheard of in Seahawks history. I mean, <laughs> yeah. this is, Jackson, this has been an issue that has predated Pete Carroll. I mean, Mike Holmgren <laughs> years. Totally. The Mike Holmgren years, they could not run screens. They couldn't run screens when Dennis Erickson was the coach. They couldn't do anything with Dennis Erickson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they have not been able to run. I mean, I wasn't alive in the mid-80s, but people that were told me they weren't great at running screens then. It just feels like that has kind of been a franchise curse. And so to see them have two big plays on screens to him, uh, that was that was big. And I actually expected they were going to be decent on screens this year, and it didn't carry over from training camp in the preseason until now. We saw him have a, a big screen play two weeks ago, so... Maybe the work they're putting in is finally starting to show up. And you can see the athleticism of guys like Anthony Bradford is 335, 340 pounds, but he can move. That dude tested well at the combine, and you can see him on that one screen getting out and laying that pancake. They've got the guys now to be able to do that. It's just it boils down to execution and and having the right timing. And they've just been so Pardon my French, but they've been so piss poor at that for yeah. decades. So it's just it was it was one of those things from the press box. I kind of had to go like this: like, did I just really see what I saw? And then he had to watch the replay. And like, oh, it was real. You know, I didn't fall asleep at the wheel here. So yeah, it's, it, he's an exciting player in the screen aspect. He's that, the that spell breaker, man. He's the spell breaker. He's finally yeah. he's finally snapped his team out of their trance. Yeah. Seriously, man, if he opens up the screen game, he's absolutely justified the draft compensation just with that. All right, I want to talk about the other side of the ball because that's really what sets Seattle apart. I mean, look, man, they've won five out of six games. You know how fucking hard that is to do in the NFL? Like, most teams don't do that ever during a season, like most teams. And they've done it. They've bounced back from that awful second half against the Rams in the opener. Uh, and, dude, Stephen's playing their asses off. They are second in the NFL in sacks per game. They're fifth in yards per play allowed. And they've been leading the NFL over the last month, only allowing 11.5 points per game. They're getting explosive plays. And by that, I mean sacks, tackles for loss, turnovers. This is their third straight game. They didn't give up a touchdown in the second half. What are you seeing when you watch this defense? Because for me, what I'm looking at is a bunch of guys really confident in their roles, really confident in their assignments, and being able to pin their ears back and play really, really fast. Yeah, I'm seeing a team. Last year is just light and day in terms of confidence and knowing what they're supposed to do with their assignments. And it's the young guys for the most part, that are leading the way. I I said this unlocked on Seahawks last time, and I got a little bit of negative feedback on this, but I'm sticking with it. I I think Devin Witherspoon is already the best player on this defense. I'm going to say it right now. He is incredible. And if you were watching the All-22, and I thought this watching the game, like Cleveland, this was the first game where I was like, an opponent is game planning to avoid him like the play. (laughs) They're trying to pick on Reek Woolen, who is like all pro last year. They're going his way because Devin Witherspoon's on the other side. Wherever he's at, I mean, I saw PFF had him down for six targets, and I was like, I don't remember him being thrown at more than two or three times. And he just, he's such a dynamic player. He's such an intelligent player that. 
you know, Kevin Stefanski's a really good offensive mind. If Kevin Stefanski's got a game plan coming in where he says, you know what, you are the opposite of the rat. You're the guy I am avoiding. We're not doing anything near you. And that's what they did the entire game. And that is the ultimate sign of respect. The fact is you said that they were like, you know what, we're going to throw 10 times at Reek Woolen because we'd rather do that than Devin Witherspoon. It just tells you what teams think of him and the immense talent that he is. And then you have Boye Mafe up front. Let's go. That is the other player. And, you know, I'm not somebody that likes to brag. I'm not somebody that likes to pat myself on the back. But in the case of Boye Mafe, yes. (laughs) I, I said early in training camp, and this is before Pete Carroll said he was the most improved player on the team. It was obvious the first couple of training camp practices. I'm like, this dude is on a whole other planet this year in terms of what he's doing. And he was one of those players when he was drafted that you see the athletic profile. You're just like... God, if we can just refine his football skills, he could be a superstar. And a lot of times, guys like that don't pan out. And boy, Mafe, it is clearly evident to me that he is the other end of the spectrum here. That dude is becoming a star in front of everybody's eyes. And I know he doesn't have the most gaudy statistics, but he's had a sack in five straight games. Franchise record. He had four, he had four quarterback hits in this game. He recovered a fumble. He's starting to get more double teams because it's just like Witherspoon. Opponents are like, we are going to get murdered by this guy if we don't start bringing extra uh, protection to help out. And it didn't matter. He still had four quarterback hits in this game. And most importantly, this is the reason I made the comment I did on social media today. You know, people a couple weeks ago thought it was hyperbole to say he's an all-pro player, but he is absolutely playing like an all-pro right now. You find me five outside linebackers, defensive ends that are playing at a higher level all around than Mafe right now, and I will point at a liar. This guy has been incredible against the run. The first play of the game against the Browns, our first drive, it was third down, and he was inside of David Njoku. He managed to get outside of his block, got his outside shoulder free, and made the tackle, and it was for a loss. It was an incredible play. Then there was another play later in the half where they had not one but two blockers coming across trying to hit him. He took them both head on, broke through one of the blocks, then made the tackle with the line of scrimmage. Like, this dude is just playing out of his mind right now, and it's incredibly fun to watch because he's just improved every part of his game. And the thing that's scary is I think he is barely scratching the surface of his potential with what he's doing right now. What's what's the difference there between a player that frankly, just look lost a lot of times as a rookie and then being able to come in. Because here's the thing. What the team is asking of Boye Mafe isn't just, hey, go do the same thing every play. He has a pretty wide variance in terms of his responsibilities out there. And he's playing a lot of snaps. How does a player make that type of leap from season one to season two? There's a couple aspects. The work that you put in the offseason, Boy Mafe, I talked to him at the beginning of training camp, and he was talking about how much emphasis that he put on working on his pass rushing moves and getting quicker off the line of scrimmage. I mean, he watched the film, and he felt like these are areas that I need to address. And watching that film really helped him learn the defense and, and learn the position. He's, he was still pretty raw at that position coming into the NFL. And so I think a lot of it's boiled down to the work that he's done. And then Brandon Jordan, the pass rushing specialist, what he's done with all these guys, I think Mafe has benefited from that addition to the coaching staff as much as any player on this football team. But he put the work in this offseason. It, it might seem like a cliche answer, but 
It's the truth. He put in the time and he attacked what he needed to attack with the pass rushing stuff. He now is getting all these reps. And the other thing I love about him and Devin Witherspoon's the same way. These two guys, when they make a mistake, they don't do it again. They learn from that mistake quickly and then they aren't going to do that same thing twice. That's why you're seeing Boye Mafe turn in these games where start to finish, he's dominant. Like when he leaped at Josh Dobbs a couple weeks ago, Like four plays later, he had back-to-back quarterback hits. He quickly learned from that. I am not going to make that mistake again. Witherspoon, when he got beat on that flea flicker, there's been a couple teams try that since, and it didn't happen. Not second time. These guys are really intelligent football players that are passionate about the game, and they learn from those mistakes. You know, the cool thing about the Seahawks defense right now is you can't just point to one group and say, oh, they're dominating because of their pass rush or, oh, they're you know, putting up these numbers because they have this lockdown secondary. They are winning at all three levels. And right in the middle of that, you've got Bobby Wagner and Jordan Brooks, who I think are playing as well as they have their entire careers. And look, for years, linebackers in the Seahawks system have been at the top of the NFL lead in tackles year over year. A lot of it's empty calories. Their tackles five, six, seven yards downfield they're getting a bunch of them because the defense can't get off the field they're giving up these 12 14 sometimes 17 play drives and this year that's not the case they're balling out and they're coming up with explosive plays jordan brooks had that sack that was just amazing man his timing his speed on that mike uh you were posting clips of a couple of plays on the defense and you you show that you said he ragdolled the quarterback he totally did on the play that mafe got the the fumble recovery you know he is playing he looks like a totally different player than he ever has before which is crazy given the severity of the knee injury that he had at the end of last year bobby wagner looks five years younger i mean everybody is playing at the top of their game right now yeah, and I think some of that, you know, these guys, I think the fun aspect, Jordan Brooks has talked about that the last couple of weeks. He's having more fun playing football right now than he has ever had. And some of it's the talent that he's got around him. Some of it's Bobby Wagner being back. And some of it's just being grateful. Like, hey, I had this serious injury, and I'm out here playing now, and I'm playing at a high level. I'm just grateful to be on the field. And you can see it. He's playing with passion and energy we never saw from him in his first three years in the NFL. And that right there shows you how much fun he's having. But I want to talk about Bobby Wagner. And going into this season – I loved it that they brought him back. I I wondered if he was still going to be an every-down linebacker. But then there was a play in training camp. I wrote about it, and it kind of blew up because people were like, there's no way this happened. But DJ Dallas, I know he's not the most athletic or the fastest running back in the world, but he's still an NFL running back, and he's got a receiving background. Wagner covered him stride for stride on a wheel route. And this was like the fourth or fifth practice. And... I was next to Ian Furness and Greg Bell, and all three of us looked at each other like, was, was that Bobby on that play? <laughs> he just he looked faster than he did when the Seahawks had him in 2021, much faster. And I'm totally. seeing that on the field in these games, too. He just he looks like he found a fountain of youth. He's playing like he's 28, 29, not 33. And he's been the biggest difference maker with the run defense, him and Jaron Reed coming back. Those two guys, they have set the tone for everybody else. You better do your assignment or I'm going to hold you accountable because they do their jobs and it's rubbed off on everyone. And that's why this run defense has gone from being one of the very worst to being one of the very best in the NFL this year. It's it's crazy, man. They're second in the NFL in yards per carry allowed right now uh, behind 
only the team they're about to play and in front of the team they just played. But yeah, I mean, that's just it. They were so atrocious against the run last year. Probably the worst run defense the Seahawks have ever had. And then for them to completely flip it is sensational. It's it, it's remarkable. And, you know, you're there's no doubt that Bobby Wagner is the fulcrum for that. I mean, just watch the games. You don't have to be a football expert. You just see it. And it's so great because a lot of people were wondering if that was just a ceremonial signing. You know, when, when they brought him back, it was kind of a feel-good deal. No, no, no. He's out there captaining one of the five best defenses in the NFL. The last guy I want to talk to you about before we look ahead to next week's game is Jamal Adams because he was quiet in the first half and and they were playing him deeper in the first half than they have most of the year. And so I think that kind of took him out of a lot of plays, but Seattle's also given up some big plays in that first half and and he was the closest guy on a couple of them. But in the second half, he had seven tackles. He had the tackle for a loss. Of course, he instigated the game-changing interception with two minutes left when he jumped up. And look, every normal human being in that situation would reach his hands up to pat the pass down. This motherfucker headbutted the ball. <laughs> It's straight up. Like he said, he's, he's, he's messy. He's messy. <laughs> he totally, totally. Julian Love was there for the interception. You know, a minute and a half later, the Seahawks are winning this game. How much juice is that dude bringing right now? You know, I, I mentioned earlier that Devin Witherspoon, in my opinion, is the most talented player on this defense already. But most talented and most indispensable are not always the same player. And it, Fair. This team missed Jamal Adams so much last year after he got hurt in the season opener. And I know Ryan Neal played some excellent games last season. And and I know there's been a lot of scrutiny for Jamal Adams when he's been healthy. But I've never agreed with that. I've always felt like he has been a true difference maker for this defense when they've used him right. And I think Clint Hurt has done a fantastic job of that. I I got to give Clint Hurt all the credit of the world. He last year looked like he was drowning at times. Mm-hmm. In his first year as a defensive coordinator, he has been outstanding this year. Some of the adjustments he's made. We talked about the lack of adjustments from Shane Waldron. Hurt's been the opposite. Clint Hurt has been the master at doing it. The Cincinnati game, they gave up two quick touchdowns, and then he stops blitzing his safeties and corners And he says, you know what? I'm going to blitz the A-gaps. I'm going to get my linebackers downhill on these guards. And suddenly the Bengals can't do shit. Right. It it was incredible to watch that. And he has been doing that all year. He has been mixing things up. And it's been a lot of fun to watch. But he is managing Jamal Adams exceptionally well off this injury. I think Jamal has looked fantastic out there. And the reason I mention him as the most indispensable player, just think of those couple drives he sat out in the first half when they were just monitoring his play snaps. This defense didn't look anything like it has the last three and a half weeks when he wasn't out there. The Giants game, they were able to get by because, well, it was the Giants and yep. Daniel Jones was playing quarterback. But in this game... Against a Cleveland team that's got some really good skill players. I thought P.J. Walker made some really impressive throws to Amari Cooper in this game, too. He looked good. He looked really good. There were some plays plays that the Seahawks had good coverage, and it didn't matter because he made some really good passes. But uh, the point is, they just don't – this defense does not look the same when 33 is not out there. And it's not just from a talent standpoint. It's the energy. It is the fire that he brings and just the positional flexibility, all the different things they can do. When they have him and Devin Witherspoon on the field together, it opens up a world of possibilities for what they can do personnel-wise without having to sub in a bunch of guys. And right. it's really it's really fun to watch when it's firing on all cylinders. 
Well, if there is one defense outside of <laughs> the Seahawks and the Browns that you can talk about as being the best in the NFL, it's the Baltimore Ravens right now. And that is who the Seahawks get in Baltimore and what might be the game of the week for the NFL. What a litmus test this is going to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Early start, East Coast. Seattle's got a terrific track record doing that under Pete Carroll. I look at this team and they do so many things so well. But at the end of the day, man, they got Lamar Jackson back there playing as well as he did when he ran away with the MVP in his first full year as a starter. He's really struggled both with Greg Roman's offense and with his own health over the last few years, not really having a lot of pass catchers. But now I think Zay Flowers has been transformative for them. Mark Andrews is still obviously excellent. But Lamar Jackson might be the MVP of the first half of the NFL season. Yeah, and they're still running him some because if you're an OC and you aren't running Lamar Jackson some, then you shouldn't be keeping your job. Uh, right. That He's such an elite, such a rare athlete for the position, and he's leading all quarterbacks in rushing yards, averaging five yards per carry. Um, Gus Edwards, the Gus truck, he has been fantastic. Three touchdowns on the ground. Their offensive line is always really good, particularly in the run game. They're not a team that's going to beat themselves most of the time. But really, Todd Monken coming into the OC, that has been the difference maker because Greg Roman had success with Lamar Jackson, but it reached a point where it was just stale. They needed to modernize the NFL offense. NFL figured is it, it out. Still- this is still a very run-centric offense, and it should be with Lamar Jackson, your quarterback, but they have a true NFL modern-style passing attack now, and they have some pass catchers that can actually play in it, like Zay Flowers. So uh, you got to see what they did to the Lions a few weeks ago. When, oh, my when goodness. They, when they're rolling and Lamar Jackson, I mean, I get so tired of the people that say Lamar Jackson can't throw the football. I'm like, he was just hindered by the guy calling plays. Lamar Jackson's got tons of throwing his touchdown pass to mark andrews last week was outrageous he can sling it with the best of them man yeah he is just an incredible talent and so you know the seahawks the first time they played him at seattle he killed them running the football they're gonna have to find a way to limit his ability to do that and that it just creates all kinds of schematic issues when you've got to deal with a quarterback that could run the way that he can and you've always got to have somebody spying on it. It takes away a lot of your coverage options. And yep. so this is a defensive coordinator's nightmare. Clint Hurt, I don't think he's probably sleeping very much this week yeah. because Lamar yeah. Jackson's the QB on the other side. So how does Seattle win this one? I, I think that this game is certainly winnable because the as good as the Brown or as good as the Ravens defense is, they have not blitzed as much this year. They have given up a handful of big plays. The Cardinals put up 24 on them. It does feel like this is a team that you can you can get some things going, but the defense is going to have to win this football game for the Seahawks, not the offense, because they're going to have to find a way to bottle up Lamar Jackson and eliminate the big plays. The Ravens are number two in the NFL in explosive plays yep. overall. They are a dynamic rushing attack with Jackson and their running backs. It hasn't mattered that uh, they're... Uh, original starter, uh, the Ohio State kid, went down at the beginning of the season yeah, with an injury. Well, Justin, Justice Hill is like an automatic first down every time he touches the football. And Gus Edwards, like I said, he's a tank. So, I mean, they just they find guys. They find running backs. They have a really good offensive line. You have to get off the field defensively. You can't let them rack up really long drives. You've got to limit the explosives. If they can do those two things – I'm confident the offense can do enough. They've played better on the road than they have at home this year for the most part. 
I'm confident the Seahawks can score enough points to win this game, but the defense, this is going to be the biggest challenge they've had in a while just because of Lamar Jackson. The run game the Ravens have, the play-action packages. They've got weapons now on the outside. They've got a great tight end, an elite tight end in Mark Andrews. So to me, this is about the defense winning this football game. Geno's going to have to play within himself, run the football play some ball control but cannot the have the gonna, turnovers against this team you man. can't you can't the thing is the ravens will take turnovers and turn them into six points mm-hmm. so you have got to be smart with the football you can't let them get turnovers on you defensively you got to find a way to get some quick possessions and not let the ravens live in the red zone because they are dangerous down there inside the 20 so this to me is a game the defense has the pressure on them because the ravens have so many weapons and this is such a fun system with todd monken calling the plays seattle five and two baltimore six and two game of the week what would it say about the seahawks if they win this game I think it says that they are a legitimate contender to win the Super Bowl. Uh, I think if you, I, right now, I personally think the Ravens are one of the two or three best teams in the league. I, I think they are fantastic. It's hard to make an argument uh, to the contrary, man. With, I mean, their defense is first in sacks, they're third in tackles for a loss, they're third in quarterback hits. They are so disruptive. They're third in pass breakups. They've got eight interceptions. They can do it all. And then the offense obviously can light it up any given Sunday with Lamar Jackson. So if Seattle can win this game on the road, that is as big of a statement win as they could possibly have. And I think you're going to see a lot more attention in the Pacific Northwest for them as a viable contender coming out of the NFC. This is the game I'm most excited for so far obviously they got that big stretch with the two against as the a reporter, Niners the, anytime I can watch Lamar Jackson in person yeah I mean, I, man that, that's that it. is that's I, it I, I don't want him to throw for 5,000 yards of this game or anything but at the same time I'm like but can they win and Lamar also have a great game because I just love I love watching him he's one of a kind he really is no man it's like getting to see like Steph Curry in person right like you're just Shohei Otani you're just going to see something that's one of one it's unique you're going to see someone who plays the game different than everybody else on the planet and yeah. I'm excited for you to get to witness that in person I'm excited to watch it on TV obviously love to see the Seahawks win this but as a football fan to see this Seahawks team against that Ravens team is just a treat. Absolutely. I can't wait. It is going to be really, really fun. I can't wait to see what the conversation looks like after this game. Listen, Corbin, you're such a stud, man. We love having you on. I know we can just wind you up and let you go forever. It's one of the things we love about you. Really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Yeah, no problem, guys. I appreciate it. Anytime. Yeah, and uh, before we get out of here, let the people who are listening that don't already know, know where they can get more of you. Yeah, you can find me on X or Twitter, whatever the hell you want to call it, uh, mm-hmm. at Corbin Smith NFL. I've been using threads quite a bit, too. Uh, same username, at Corbin Smith NFL. Locked on Seahawks is on YouTube, all major podcast platforms, five or six shows a week. Uh, we grind it out on Locked on Seahawks. And uh, you can find my stuff at si.com slash NFL slash Seahawks. Awesome, man. Well, once again, super grateful for your time. Yeah, no problem. All right, y'all, that's going to do it for today. As always, you can find Mike and I on social media as well. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Mike is on Twitter at, at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can catch full video episodes on our YouTube channel at Cigar Thoughts. And find the rest of our socials at CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article after each game at FieldGoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a quick review. Finally, 
Be sure to check out CigarThoughtsNFL.com to get your exclusive Cigar Thought cigars, or hit me up on Twitter, and I'll shoot you the deets. And when you buy those cigars, reach out and tell us what you think. Thank you to all of y'all listening for your continued support of this show. We know you've only got so much time for podcasts in your life, and it is an honor to be a part of that for y'all. Please know that by sharing this show on social media and with your friends, you give us the juice to keep making this happen. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Onwards and upwards, my friends.